It's been really interesting to just process this last uh, number of weeks together um, as we're in this counterformed uh, series. And the heart of this came as I was reading in a book a story from uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, a German American um, preacher, evangelist, kind of spiritual leader during the time of the Second World War. And uh, he was living in America when the war started, but he actually moved back to Germany. And he just felt this calling from God to, to get beyond superficial spiritual life and to call people into like this deep, intense spiritual walk with Jesus. And he formed this this seminary, basically, which was more like a monastery in an area called Finkenwald. And he was uh, engaging these students of the seminary in spiritual practices, in monastic practices, actually. And people around them were getting a little bit nervous, like the status quo church people were getting kind of nervous as he walked with these seminary students into this radical spiritual life with Jesus. And some of them started to speak up and say, Dietrich, you've gone too far. Like you're, you're overly spiritual. You're being weird about this. You're, you're, you're doing, uh, you're too devoted <laughs> to Jesus. And one of his friends who was a historian came and visited this little seminary and he was kind of critiquing what was going on there. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer took him in a rowboat and they crossed this river and they walked up this berm on the other side of this river. And as they came over the crest of that berm, they saw an airbase. And on this airbase, they just stood there watching for a little while and they saw planes coming landing and taking off in formation and doing their drills. They saw soldiers walking in formation and marching in formation. They saw soldiers engaging in uh, uh, the practice of combat and war. And Dietrich said something to him that has just shaken me so much, which is kind of where this whole series has come out. He said, what we do spiritually must be stronger than this as he looked at that airbase. And the reality is, if we're honest, if I'm honest, if we, if we could just be honest with ourselves for a moment, for so long we've adopted this cultural Christianity that's more, uh, more convicted not to make waves but to just go with the flow of culture in the world. We've adopted this version of Christianity that's largely superficial, and it's had very little impact on the world. But we can't afford to do that anymore because things are getting ratcheted up, and the devil, Satan, he's got a militaristic program for formation into his kingdom. 
And if we actually don't step up and say, Jesus, I want to be formed into your image with the same intensity as the enemy is forming the world, then we're not going to make it. That's the heart of this whole series, that we would understand God wants to do something in your life and my life, not just because he likes us, but because he has a calling on your life. The Bible says that our our greatest calling is to be shaped into the image of Jesus, to be formed into his image. The world is forming us and our children into its own image, and it's doing it with intense militaristic precision. Just step on any university campus right now. It's an ideological formation that is precise. It's dedicated. There's a, there's a zealousy to it that we don't find even in the church often. And God is inviting us to step into a new season in our lives where we're being shaped and formed by the kingdom so that we can impact the world around us. We've been talking about these practices and when I say that, I don't just mean this abstract idea of like spiritual growth. There were practical things that Jesus did to counterform him into the shape of his father's kingdom in the midst of a a violent and oppressive world that he himself walked in. And he's inviting us to follow his example. We've been talking about this as a church a bunch, but there are three sort of areas that we can step into practically to become like Jesus. Number one, come under scripture like Jesus did. We need to actually redefine what it means to come under scripture and not stand over it not demand that scripture meet my lifestyle or scripture meet my, uh, my convictions or my idea of morality or sexuality or whatever it is. Scripture actually needs to shape us from the top down. That's what happened in Jesus's life. He allowed scripture to shape him. The second thing Jesus did was he engaged in intentional spiritual practices That's what we've been talking about in these weeks. And today we're going to talk about another one. And the third thing that Jesus did is he walked in reliance and dependence on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. And we're going to get into that after Easter. Those were the practical ways that Jesus himself was shaped. And they are the model he gave us for our own life. They're the model that he walked out as the Son of God, fully God, fully man. But he walked ahead of us and showed us how we can live in the kingdom. And today we're talking about being counterformed by fasting. And that's being counterformed by hunger in a culture of indulgence. I was reading about this in the last little while. And uh, a secular sort of... Um, author had kind of made this point, and I think it's really interesting. In much of the world, their relation to food asks one question. Can I get enough to survive? Much of the world, that's their reality to food. Is, is will I be able to eat today? Like just before COVID, I was with a team from here. We were in Malawi in Africa 
We were in a refugee camp, and that's the reality every day where you're talking to pastors and leaders and they're, they're talking together about how they're going to ration their rice portion for the day so that everybody gets a little bit. For most of the world, that's how they relate to food. The middle class relates to food in a different way. And it's how much can I consume? It's the supersize me culture. How much can I get? It's the golden corral buffet in the States, or it's our Sunday afternoon trip to the Mandarin. Like, how full could I possibly make this plate? Personally, I like space between all of my things. I'd rather go 30 times than three. That's just me. But some people, it's like a five-story building there with their wontons and then their egg rolls and their chicken balls and their rice and all of that. That's the middle class question is, how much can I consume? The question of the wealthy is, does it look beautiful? And they spend exorbitant amounts of money on beautiful presentation, on indulging their eyes and their senses. And I, if you've been here a while, I love food. I was prepping while I was smoking ribs on the barbecue yesterday. Like, this is the real thing for me. This is not just theory. I love food, and I love good food. I love lots of it, too. Amen. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Apparently, my wife said we're going to start fasting tomorrow, so I don't know. This is a, maybe this is a message of mourning and loss for me. But, um, but those are the questions, and we live in a culture that craves indulgence. Is it beautiful to my eyes? Is it pleasing to me? Is it plated just right? And fasting is a counterformation where we embrace hunger in our bodies to actually confront the indulgence of our culture around us. The reason that we live with this indulgent culture is not inherently sinful. You see, God created us to live in the goodness of his creation. I want to just jump back with you, if you would. If you have a Bible or an app on your phone, you can open it up to Genesis 1. Let's just read this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He made them male and female. Then God blessed them. Listen to this. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. I haven't withheld anything from you. My heart and my desire is not that you live in this morose sort of like suffering mentality. I, I created this world around you for your pleasure, actually. 
to provide for you and sustain you. There's good things all over that come from the hand of God and he created it, not so we would be depressed and morose all the time, but actually for our fulfillment. I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals. I just want to stop and acknowledge this verse. The green plants are for the animals, all right? Okay, this is biblical. This is like, thus saith the Lord. All right. I stopped on that this week. I'm like, whoa, okay, I've got it, Jesus. I'm not becoming vegetarian. No offense to you vegetarians, but you are theologically wrong. All right. (laughs) And the small animals that scurry along and everything that has life, God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. Evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. Let's move on to Genesis 2 real quick. This is the heart of God. This is the way he intended things to be. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful, notice that language, and that produced delicious fruit. Notice we're talking about food here. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason that we are longing for beauty and longing for indulgence is not inherently evil. It's because God created us to desire that. He actually created us for Eden. And a lot of what we are facing in the world today, a lot of what um, is pulling us apart and overwhelming us and, and, and just gnawing at us is this, this inner um, knowledge that we were created for something more than we're experiencing. Like we were created for more than a world filled with brokenness and violence and hurt and abuse and evil and trauma and pain. Our our soul knows it and our soul is longing for Eden again. The problem is the devil knows that too. And he's taken that righteous desire to experience the goodness of God and he's distorted it and disordered it. These counterformational practices are to reorder disordered desires. The problem is not that you see beauty in food or you, you see a desire for things like that. The problem is that those have become Lord over our whole life. We're now slave to indulgence. And fasting counterforms us from that. God gave us a vision of the good life. And deep down in your soul and in my soul, we have this God-given vision of the good life. And everything around us tears at that, but we, we long for that. God's heart is that you and I would actually experience what the good life really is here and now. But the road to the good life is not through indulgence. It's through hunger. I want to just move on from there. Eden is what we were made for. 
But even in Eden, God's vision of the good life for humanity was sabotaged. Genesis 3, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Again, notice we're actually centering this on food. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit of, from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. So the enemy is already perverting and, and distorting God's voice in Eve's life. He's already tricking her into this counterfeit idea of the nature of God. Eve goes on to say, he, God said, you must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. God's withholding the good life from you, Eve. He's not interested in your flourishing. He's holding back from you. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Since that moment, our desires have been twisted and disordered, and we've been chasing Eden. We've been chasing God's vision of goodness for our life. But the world is actually distorting and twisting the road to get there. God says, I have a way for you to flourish. I have a way for you to experience my abundant life. I have a way for you to walk in peace, in conflict, joy in the midst of overwhelming sorrow. I have a way for you to live on this earth, in this world. And it's actually my vision for you. It's the good life, but the road to get there is different than the one the enemy is tempting you with. So we know something isn't working. We're bombarded and overwhelmed. And we don't know what to do. How many times have you thought in the last couple of years, I'm not sure what to do. I don't know who to believe. I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to do. I want to honor God, but I, I don't know how to live even right now. We know that something's blocking us from God's vision of goodness for our life. But we're not sure how to break that. We're not sure how to break through. The reason is because this is a spiritual battle, not a physical one. Ephesians 6, 2, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The practice of fasting, the counterformational practice of fasting is a key way that we actually embody in ourselves a spiritual battle. It's a way that we fight spiritually. The enemy says, live for indulgence. 
Whatever your eye sees that you desire, go and get it. That's what our culture says. Nothing should be withheld from me. Any desire I have I, I, I needs to be fulfilled. That's what our culture says. But God says that I have a different road to the good life, back to Eden for you. And that road includes things like denial and hunger, surrender, things like giving up our rights, things like humility and dependence on him. So the spiritual practice of fasting is a key way that we fight spiritually. I want to just show you here. We'll bring it up on the screen. What is fasting? It's actually very simple. Fasting biblically, all right? I'm not talking about the rocks, keto fast or whatever. Fasting biblically is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose, all right? It's very simple. Now, I know we've adopted a whole bunch of other things. Like we use language like I'm fasting from social media. I'm fasting from this person, <laughs> like whatever it is. But um, that's actually not fasting. Those might be very helpful and healthy things to do. But fasting biblically is very simple. It's refraining from food for spiritual purposes. There's three types of fast the Bible talks about. Number one, is an absolute or supernatural fast. This was the fast that Moses engaged in where he had no food or no water. So the reason it's called supernatural is because unless you have a very, 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 very clear call from God to do that, in three days you're gonna die because you don't have water, right? So, but Moses engaged in a 40-day supernatural fast when he was on the mountain, uh, receiving the Ten Commandments, he fasted for 40 days from water and food. The second kind of fasting, which would be called a normal fast, is just going without solid food. So there you're, you can you drink, you know, um, you know, broths and things like that. If you want to kind of fudge with things like booster juice smoothies and whatever, I just say grace. Like you have grace to have uh, fruit smoothies that have even chunks in them, just small chunks though. <laughs> the chunks can't be too big, right? So, <laughs> oh, there's been so many funny conversations I've had with Jesus fasting, like, is this chunk too big? Uh, you know what, Lord, I will just, I will walk in your grace. No, not in legalism. I will take this mango hurricane smoothie into my body. All right, so. Uh, and then the third kind of fasting the Bible talks about is partial fasting. So we see this in the life of Daniel. Daniel fasted from uh, meat. So he went on a vegetable fast. Uh, another time Daniel talked about fasting from sweets. So from desserts and things like that. And so those would be partial fasts. So fasting in and of itself is just simple. It's refraining from eating food for a spiritual purpose. Fasting though needs to be combined with prayer and time in the Word of God, or else it is nothing more than just dieting. So we need to combine both of these things together. Fasting confronts two obsessive questions in our culture. So fasting directly confronts two obsessive questions that have driven our culture and humanity since the garden. How do I feel? Fasting confronts our, our, our drive to be led by our feelings, 
well, that looks really good right now. I feel like I want that. I feel like I deserve that. Uh, Whatever it is, fasting confronts that drive. And like Eve, so often we feel like we have FOMO, right? We're missing out. God, I like, I don't very often get to go to the keg, so I, I probably should do that, right? Like somebody's blessed me with that. And so we're driven by how we feel because we don't want to miss out on life. Fasting confronts, actually, that, that emotion-driven reality. And the second one is, what do I want? Fasting confronts being a driven by just what we want in the moment, impulsive living. Fasting is actually a season that we take on. And biblically speaking, there's, I mean, you can fast for however many days you want. 40 days is a pattern. 21 days is a pattern as well. But fasting confronts these questions. Am I going to be driven by how I feel and what I want? And what fasting does is it counterforms us and says, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a a greater sustaining force in my life, a more powerful reality than what I see before me right now. Two things about fasting Fasting counterforms numbness to God's presence and his voice. So fasting is a practice. Jesus used this practice of fasting. Fasting counterforms numbness to God's presence and his voice in our culture of excessive choice and indulgence. So one of the purposes of fasting is to actually uh, re-spark our awareness of God's presence and our ability to discern and to hear his voice. We see this in scripture in a few places. The prophet Anna, in the birth story of Jesus, Anna was a prophetess. She was in her 90s and she was waiting for the Messiah. Get this, she spent every day in the temple waiting and praying and fasting. I want you to just... Just hear this, because we gloss over this kind of thing. Anna was doing that for decades and decades and decades. When Jesus was born and brought into the temple, she was one of two people who recognized who he really was. Simeon was the other. Fasting alerted Anna to the presence of God. She could recognize the reality of who this child was, a stranger and a a nobody to everybody else. But because Anna had spent her life practicing the, the discipline of fasting, she was alert to the presence of God and the voice of God. And when the Son of God was in front of her, she knew exactly who he was when no one else did. That's what fasting does. It awakens you to God's presence in your life. It rekindles his voice in your life. In in a culture of indulgence, in a culture where we just, we're excessive. We go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. We can't even pay attention for more than 20 seconds. A tweet is too long for half of you now, right? We just scroll, scroll, scroll. We move from one thing to the next. Fasting slows us down so we can be aware of the voice of God. 
in the early church in Acts 13, they used fasting to discern major moves in direction. They used fasting as a church to discern who their next leaders should be, where they needed to go in direction. Fasting attunes us to the presence of God and his voice. The serpent confused and tricked Eve with indulgence and variety and excessive, you know, enjoyment of everything around her. Fasting actually resists that. It says, no, I'm not going to be driven by what I see or hear around me. I want to be driven by the Spirit of God, the presence of God in my life. The next thing that... I just want to tell you a story real quick. I won't get into the details. A few times in my life, I've done a longer fast, a 40-day fast. And every time, God has done something significant. But um, the second last time I did it, I was in a major life transition possible moment. And one morning, just out of the blue, I was working actually at Central down the street. I loved working there. And one day out of the blue, God, I was maybe a week into fasting, maybe a little bit more. And just in the morning, one morning, God said, your pastor, Bill, he's going to make one of two decisions. And he's going to come to you and he's going to make one of two choices. And here they are. If it's choice A, I'm, I'm asking you to, I'm releasing you to leave there. And if it's choice B, I'm calling you to stay. Two months later, it was like when you talk about deja vu, two months later, I was in his office and the very exact words were coming out of his mouth that God spoke to me. And it was the choice to actually be released and to leave, but I panicked in that moment. It's like, oh, I'm not ready to go now. Like, I don't have anything lined up on the other. Like, I'm not, I haven't been working this out or planning this out. And I had this moment of panic. And I actually stayed, and I stayed longer than I should have, and it led to a whole bunch of hurt and trouble in relationships because I was disobedient on the other end of it. But fasting was actually the thing that alerted me to the voice of God and gave me this clarity. And so many of us today, we're just drowning in so much stuff. We, we are not aware of God's presence, and we cannot hear his voice, but he's wanting to lead you. He wants to lead you toward Eden. He wants to lead you toward the kind of flourishing that he's designed for you. And fasting does that. The second thing fasting does is it counterforms spiritual weakness. It's a big thing in the church today. Fasting brings breakthrough and transformation. We see this in the life of Moses, his 40-day Fast resulted in the Ten Commandments, breakthrough for the nation of Israel. Hannah in the Old Testament was barren, which was a mark of incredible shame for a woman in antiquity. Thousands of years before Jesus was on the earth, Hannah was alive and she was barren and she fasted and cried out to God to open her womb and God did And she had a son named Samuel. Samuel became one of the mightiest prophets, like earth-changing prophets to Israel. Samuel was the prophet who recognized and called King David 
up out of obscurity in the pastures of the Middle East. Samuel was a man after God's heart and Hannah fasted and prayed and God broke through that. Esther, you may know her story. The Israelites were facing annihilation, genocide. And she called the whole community of Israel to fast and to pray. And God delivered them from judgment and from death. Fasting brings breakthrough and transformation. I want to read to you a little, a little bit more scripture, Luke 4. Luke 4, you've maybe heard this story. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Pastor Brenda talked about the wilderness last week. We've talked about this a few times. Where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days, Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told them, no, the scriptures say people don't live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they're mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Notice that differentiation. He walks in, led by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, but he comes out of 40 days of fasting in the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Brenda mentioned this, but we need to repeat it. Um, the wilderness is not a place of weakness. In scripture, in biblical language, the wilderness is not a place of weakness. The wilderness is a place of spiritual strength. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness because that was the place removed from all the, the trappings of society, all of the distractions, all of the confusion, all of the clamoring for his attention. That was the place where Jesus could be tuned into the presence and voice of his father. That was the place of strength. We, we run the other way from wilderness experiences in our life. But let me tell you, fasting as a, a practice in our life, a regular rhythm in our life, is a, an entering into the wilderness and a place of spiritual strength, not weakness. When we actually resist the, the indulgence of the world and, and do that by not eating food, we are actually entering into a place of strength, not weakness. I was reading one time the early church fathers and the, the desert fathers and early monastics they, they kind of made this point about this story that I thought was interesting. They said, you know, most likely the devil wouldn't have just shown up there to Jesus and all of his real raw grossness. 
Maybe Jesus didn't even see him. The devil came as a voice in his head. Hey, Jesus, you're starving. You're starving and hungry. You could turn that stone into bread. You could end this right now. Why don't you do it? You think the devil would really sit in front of him and all of his reality? No, he's the father of lies. He's deceitful. He's in masquerading as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you with all of his grossness. He comes to you in appealing indulgence, appealing to your desires, appealing to your affections, appealing to your wants. Jesus, you could do it. Nobody's out here to see you. Just do it. Satisfy yourself, Jesus. Crave, satisfy that craving. The reason the Holy Spirit led Jesus, I believe, into the desert was so that he would have the discernment to know the difference between the lies and the tricks of the enemy and the voice of his father. He wasn't dealing with the, the crowded marketplace and everybody crowding in on him. He could hear the voice of his father. He was in a place of strength, not weakness. Fasting actually puts us into a place of spiritual strength for breakthrough, not weakness. It's when we go without, it's when we step into the wilderness that the Spirit of God comes in a transformative way and begins to work in our lives. One of the most powerful lies of the devil is that the road back to Eden, the road to the good life, is one of desire and indulgence now. It's satisfying your cravings now. That's a lie. You see, all the things that the devil tempted Jesus with were partial truths. He could have turned that stone into bread. If he would have thrown himself off the temple, the angels would have protected him because his time hadn't come yet. The devil does actually, for a time, rule on the earth. There were partial truths there, and Jesus needed to be in that place where he could hear the voice of his Father. My question to you is, when is the last time you clearly heard the voice of the Father in your life? Are you aware of his presence? Or are you just distracted and like ADDing on life and everything around? Fasting counterforms us. I want to read you one more story before we leave here. Mark 9. This is after the transfiguration up on the mountain. When they returned to the other disciples, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John with him up there. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What's all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't. Do you know what happens when as Christians we're walking in an anemic, powerless life? We do what they do, and we just start arguing with each other about doctrine. We start arguing and fighting about theology because our life has no power and substance in it. That's what we do. 
I can't do anything about what's going on. I don't know how to address the world around me. I don't know how to address what's going on in my life. So let me just fight with you about why you're wrong about these, 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 and these things. Let me argue and banter back and forth with you forever about doctrine or theology because we can't actually address the realities of life with the kingdom of God in our midst. And God is calling the church up out of that kind of life and into a life of authority and power. Amen. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how, mo- how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. I love how nonchalant he is. <laughs> like, I'd be losing my mind. And Jesus is just like, so just talk to me about yourself a little bit here. <laughs> Have a seat, you know, and the dad is probably just freaking out. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this little child, never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. And a lot of translations add, and fasting. Here's what I want to just bring to your attention. Jesus didn't have to stop and call a three-day fast in order to actually deal with the demonic presence of that boy. Why? Because he had been living a life of practicing the rhythms of fasting. He didn't have to stop and go, wait a minute, like, I gotta go, I got, I got, I got, I got more time that I need in prayer. Jesus lived a life of fasting in the presence of God. So when the moment came when he needed to access power, he had it. You and I have very little power because we're not doing what we need to do in the moments where no one's watching. We, we, we live with this expectation that Jesus is just gonna show up in the moment, like when I need him at my beck and call. But it doesn't work like that. He calls you and I to to get on our knees and to enter the wilderness of fasting in the daily rhythms and monthly rhythms of life so that in the moment of trial and hardship, when stuff needs to happen, we have the authority and the power because we've been building it up over time. That's what he's calling the church to, to stop playing Sunday morning church and get into the game Monday to Saturday. Start doing the stuff that Jesus did in his own life so that when you need to access the authority and power of the kingdom, it's there because you've been working and lifting those spiritual weights. Fasting is a practice that breaks 
strongholds. So my question to you, just as we close, is what is your this kind? Jesus said this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. What is your this kind? What is that thing, that person, that circumstance in your life that you felt powerless to be able to affect change in, that you felt at the mercy of? What is your this kind? And would you be willing, as Jesus did, to enter into a life where you're engaging in the practices that Jesus used so that you can develop an awareness of the presence and voice of God and the authority and power that come with his kingdom? What is your this kind? Because your this kind is not an insurmountable obstacle to Jesus. It just might require something more of you and I than we've been willing to pay so far. Fasting and the wilderness is not a place of weakness. It's a place of spiritual power and strength. The question is, have you been going there to be empowered through it? That's the question we need to ask. Jesus is calling us to follow him and to be counterformed through hunger in the wilderness instead of a constant desire for his blessing in beautiful places? Would you be willing to walk into the wilderness with Jesus if it meant freedom for your family? Parents, would you be willing to walk into the wilderness with Jesus if it meant deliverance for, for your children? Friends, would you be willing to do it for your friends at high school, in high school or university? Would you be willing to go into the wilderness to be strengthened by God so that you can actually encounter the this kind of thing and have the spiritual authority and power to deal with it, not for your own sake, but for the sake of those around you. God is calling you to that kind of spiritual life and fasting is one of the ways we are counterformed into that. So we're longing for that good life. We're longing for Eden and we know things are broken around us. But just simply doing what we've always done, it will be ineffective to, in our lives to actually break through and walk in peace and joy and hope and power and authority in a world that is just crumbling around us. What would you be willing to do in your own life? Lastly, Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's his heart for you. His heart for you is that you would experience a deeply satisfying life. And one of the ways into that is being counterformed through fasting. As a church, this year we've committed to dedicating the first Monday of every month to fasting and prayer. As a whole church, obviously, I'm not checking your social media feeds to see what you're eating tomorrow or anything like that, but just encouraging you because we recognize as a church, as a family, we need to be building our spiritual muscle and that actually costs us something. I just want to invite uh, Indy up and Janice for a moment. Part of that fasting is to actually pray 
for God to break through and do the impossible in our own family. We've started this, this thing all started with, with Connor and Sarah and Georgia, Prebianca. They weren't able to be here this morning. Come, come on right up here, guys. Um, but we're still praying and fasting for God to heal Georgia. She has an extremely, extremely rare genetic disorder that is just heartbreaking to watch. And we're praying and fasting. We've dedicated the first Monday of every month to do that until God breaks through. And we're not gonna stop. And we have other needs in our church, maybe in your families, other stuff that have, have just been like a wall a hundred feet high that we can't get over. As a community together, we wanna be willing to put ourselves into that wilderness experience and fast and pray for breakthrough. One of the present ones um, is with Janice's dad, who's in the ICU and he has been for a while and it's been like a roller coaster for you guys. And so I wanted just to invite you guys up to just briefly share um, about your dad because we will be fasting and praying for him tomorrow. And we'll be connecting here at seven o'clock tomorrow night to pray together as a community. So just give us a bit of an update. So I'm running on caffeine in Jesus right now, so I, I need some notes here. Um, so this is my brother-in-law, and we're representing all, the whole family here today. In, this is Indy. Um, my dad's been on life support for three weeks. My dad loves the Lord with his whole heart. He loved his Bible. We've spent the last three weeks reading and treasuring it. The notes dad left in there have been an incredible gift to our family. One note that he had on a little sticky note stuck in there, it said this, we want to see the future, but we can't. We need to trust. We need to trust in our Savior. On Friday, my mom, sister, and I sat in front of a panel of doctors and nurses in this cold, sterile room and before they came in, I just started singing. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm, the first song we sang today. Louder and louder, we're going to hear those praises roar. And that is our hope. The nurses and doctors came in, and they pretty much told us there was no hope. And our family needed to make some very hard decisions. But God, Joshua 10, 25, Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. So we fight with prayer and fasting and praise to the one who loves my dad more than we do. Thank you for all the love and support that you've given to us already. Thank you for being willing to fight with us. Do you want to say anything, Indy? She preached it. All right, she did preach it. That's good. So we don't know the future. And we've, in our church, had incredible loss in this last season. And we've contended for and fasted for and prayed for people um, that God has called home and we can't control those circumstances, but what we can do 
is actually do the things that Jesus calls us to. I want to just invite you to stand as we close. And I want to call you. I want to encourage you. I just want to call you off the bench and into the game. Like God wants to do things through your life that you can't even imagine with strength that doesn't come from you and wisdom that doesn't come from you and authority that's not your own, it's Jesus's. The question is, would you be willing to walk into those wilderness places to hear his voice and get his direction and be strengthened with his power and authority so that when it comes time to, to prayer and stuff like that, that you have that authority. What's your dad's name again? Dick. Okay, let's pray for him. If you can, I, I just, this is not like a magic thing, but it's just a symbol of just agreement together. If you would want to raise your hands toward us at the front here. And Father, we just, we are powerless in our own strength to do anything. And so Jesus, we just call on you we give ourselves to you and we pray for Dick right now. Father, I just in his hospital room right now, I ask Jesus that you would speak life, that you would speak truth, that you would speak over his body. Father, I pray for Carolyn and uh, whoever else might be present or they're praying right now, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Father, we do ask that your, your kingdom would come and your will would be done, but we just contend, God, for life and we contend for hope. And we just ask, Father, that you would do out of your uh, immeasurable strength more than we could hope or imagine in this. Father, I pray that you would break that cycle, the medical cycle that's going on of these of this valleys, like these ups and downs, Father, that you would strengthen and heal his lungs, that you would heal his body, every cell and fiber and tissue. I call them in Jesus' name to come under the authority of Christ and to be obedient to the voice of Jesus right now. Father, I just ask that, um, that you would move in a powerful and miraculous way. And even as we fast and pray as a community tomorrow, Father, we're praying for Georgia Prebianca. We just, we just ask for full and complete healing in her life. Father, I just am even thinking of Anna right now, that you would strengthen her, that you would supernaturally fill her. Father, that you would encourage her, that you would fill her with your spirit and with hope and that you would renew her. Father, I just... I pray that you would move in a powerful way in our families, that you would restore marriages, that you would bring back, God, children that have wandered away from you. Father, that you would restore friendships and relationships. God, that you would restore work environments. Father, we're just asking that you would work on our behalf around us as we humble ourselves before you. And God, we just, we're sorry for just being content to sit on the sidelines. We're sorry for being punching bags of the enemy. We just ask that you would call us into the game, that you would call us to a counterform life of fasting and prayer. Father, I just, I don't want to guilt anyone here. I just ask Holy Spirit that you would come and that you would just bring your life-giving conviction that you would stir us to live the way that you did. In Jesus' name, amen.